Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning again. We are continuing in our series called Vision 2020 when we're taking a look toward the coming year and what God may have for our church and what, more importantly, He may have in store for you and your family. Um, I want to bring a slide for you that you've seen if you've been with us the last several weeks. We've been talking about what Christian maturity looks like, and we identified it as Galatians 2.20. Uh, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The old person that Paul used to be is gone. Um, that uh, guy that had was horribly impatient and was, would fly off the handle uh, with anger, um, that that person is gone. God's put him off to the side. He's been crucified. And now what has taken his place, what has filled that void, is Christ's likeness. And he goes on to describe, he says, Christ lives in me. He goes on to describe what Christ's likeness looks like a little bit later in the book of Galatians, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those um, attributes, all those characteristics that you see up there on the screen. And so what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks is or identified three different criteria or three different steps that you and I might take. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is some criteria um, that will help move us closer toward maturity, closer to becoming what Paul had become, what the Lord Jesus was. Um, and so we identified those as total surrender to Christ. We identified another one of those as being plugged into Christian community, being here on Sunday mornings, being a part of the community, being a part of the church service, being a part of small groups, connecting where other Christians are. Um, as the scriptures say, as iron sharpens iron, so one man or one woman sharpens another. And then one of the other criteria that we listed off, we talked about that last couple of weeks, was this idea of pray, prayer. And uh, we talked about how we are to pray. We looked at um, Jesus is the Lord's Prayer and Him teaching us how to pray. And so He said, hey, Lord, if you take those three things together, total surrender to Christ, being in relationship with other believers, iron sharpening iron, and then um, having an active daily quiet time, that if we're operating in those three areas of our life, more and more of this picture will become who we are. We'll begin to identify as somebody who is a person of joy. It's not, a, not an emotion that we have to force, not a response that we have to um, uh, 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 you know, force upon ourselves or that we have to hold back uh, the anger person, but rather that patience just naturally flows out of us. And so that's what Paul is saying um, is the higher Christian life, the mature Christian life that God's calling us to. And so part of our mission statement says that we're here, we exist to mature the believer. So this is what maturity looks like. Now I want to transition today and begin talking about the second part of our mission statement. We're actually just going to spend one, maybe next week as well. We'll just see. Depends on how the studies go this coming week. Um, uh, this idea of winning the loss. So we're winning the loss and maturing the believer. So today we're going to talk about, um, is there more than one way to get to heaven? What do the scriptures have to say about that? Certainly our culture has an opinion on it. Certainly people that we work with have an opinion on it. And what is that one way? How, if there is one way, how do we get to heaven? What does that look like? Um, our scriptures come to us today from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where Peter is, um, and the other disciples, the other apostles have been arrested. Uh, during the night, they had just healed a crippled beggar in Acts chapter 3 at the temple courts, and then they go on, um, in Act, and then they're, they're thrown in jail, and then it's the next morning, and Peter comes to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, before the elites, right, the political elites of his government of his day, and so he's on trial before them. And so what we're going to read here in Acts chapter 4 is his response to those political elites, okay? So let's stand together and read from God's Word, Acts chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verses 9 through 12, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. Here we go. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You may be seated. Thank you so much. What I'd like to do is just unpack the scripture for a little bit, just kind of walk through this text. Remember, our question is, is there more than one way to get to heaven? Let's see what the scriptures have to say. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. At verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to the intellectual elites, to the rulers and the elders of the people, verse 9, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, in other words, you arrested us last night, you threw us in a little stony uh, holding cell down in the cellar. Um, I slept down there last night on the icy cold, cold stone, and my skin still feels frozen. Um, and now you're asking us by what means, how is it that this man was healed? How, how, how did this act of kindness, I mean, you arrest us for an act of kindness, really? Um, and so you're asking us by what means this man was healed. He says, I'll tell you how he was healed. Are you ready for this, right? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it is by him, Jesus, that this man stands before you well, that is, that this man stands before you healed. He's been made whole. Now, I want for us to fully appreciate what Peter says here when he calls Jesus the Christ. I've got a slide for you here of two uh, foreign languages, you might say. Uh, the Greek word for Christ is Christos, but then that word Christos is a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. So whenever we say Christ, we're actually saying Messiah. When we call Jesus Christ, we're calling him Jesus, Messiah, one and the same word. You say, well, why didn't Peter just use the word Messiah if he was referring to Jesus as the Messiah? Because remember, Messiah comes with all these expectations of um, taking over, uh, putting the enemies of Israel um, at bay. Why wouldn't he have just called him Jesus Messiah? He is talking to a group of Hebrew people here, right? Well, the thing was, in Peter's day, um, they were a conquered people. The Jews were a conquered people. The Romans had come in, and because the Romans had conquered them, they wanted them to speak the Roman language. That is, they wanted them to speak Greek. This is, and so they wanted the whole world there to speak Greek. And so most of the, um, the Jews in Peter's day, the common language that they would have all spoken would have been Greek. And so that's why our New Testament is written. I'm probably going to need those a little bit later. That's why the, that's why the common language... Um, that they spoke in their day was Greek, and that's why the New Testament is written in Greek and not in Hebrew. You follow me? Okay, so when he says Jesus is Christ, he's actually making a declaration that Jesus is Messiah. Um, he could have said Jesus of Nazareth. He did say Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He could have just dropped the Christ off of there, but because, I mean, Nazareth was where Jesus was from, but he put Christ in there. He put the word Messiah in there to declare who Jesus is. He could have said Jesus, son of Joseph, because that would have been his family heritage. That would have been his name. He could have just referred to Jesus by his earthly name. Um, but instead, again, he chose to call him Jesus Christ. That is Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, he's emboldened by the Holy Spirit, it says, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to say um, what he said, to say, to declare that this, this Jesus, whom you all crucified, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one whom we've been waiting for. And then Peter goes on to say, middle of verse 10, whom you crucified. So he's not trying to win over any friends here, is he? He's reporting, he's sitting before the Senate and the hearing committee or the congressional committee, and he says to them, to this body of uh, political authoritarians, 
that, hey, look, you all crucified God's Messiah. You can imagine how that went over, right? He says, but whom God raised from the dead, God had a plan beyond what we did. And it's by this man, Jesus, through him, that this man is standing, this man, this crippled beggar, is now standing before you well. In other words, Peter's saying, I didn't do it, right? It was, the power didn't come from me. It wasn't some magical phrase that I uttered. It wasn't some potion that I sprinkled over him or some sort of fairy dust that caused him to be healed. The reason that he's healed is because the power of Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, that's how he's been made well. That's where the power came from. And then Peter quotes from the Psalms saying, verse 12, that Jesus is the stone or the cornerstone that was rejected by you. Again, he's reminding these religious leaders what they've done, that they have rejected the cornerstone. Now, I got a picture for you here of two old walls from back in that day and how they were adjoined. And you can see there that big, massive stone in the corner. This would have been the cornerstone. It was the largest stone in a long um, run or long span of walls. And the reason why it was so massive as a stone is because it held the weight of that entire wall when, where the two uh, joined together. And so you had to have these big stones, one over another, to hold the weight of that wall. And then there'd be much smaller stones that would have made up the, the length of the wall. And so he's saying Jesus is the, what's holding together the weight of the wall of Judaism. Jesus is the, is, is the key. He's the thing that holds everything together. He holds our faith together. And then I love this. He points out again, remember that they've rejected him. Verse 12, last verse, that there is, he says, so let me just boil it all down for you, that there um, is, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter affirms something monumental here. He says, if you want to get to heaven, there is no other way to get there but through Jesus the Christ. Period. That statement didn't leave a lot of wiggle room. That's what I like to call an unequivocal statement. And so that's the statement that Peter makes here. Um, For there is no other name under heaven, he says, by which we must be saved. And so there you have Peter's trial, the first of several trials that Peter and the Apostle Paul and others will go through, undergo over the course of the book of Acts. Um, But Peter is not backing down here, is he? He has an opportunity, could have called Jesus just Jesus of Nazareth, but he referred to him by his title, he referred to him by his identity. This is the one we've been waiting on, folks. He came, he suffered, he died, he rose again. All right, well, that's our treatment of this passage, and that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate that Peter had a trial. I appreciate that Peter stood firm. I appreciate that Peter told the truth, that he didn't uh, wait for the rooster to crow this time, but uh, he was emboldened and that he said the right things, and he stood for what was right. But, I mean, how's that helped me get the kids off to school? How's that helped me with all the things I got going on in my life? That was a trial that took place in the first century. I mean, we're, what, 2,000 years? Is that remember right? I don't know. Everybody, anybody paying attention to me? Biscuits this morning, guys? I don't know. Um, thousands of years later, um, and here we are. What difference does all this make to me? Well, let's see if we can answer that. You see, Peter was right that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one whom the Jewish people have been waiting for. And so Peter makes this very clear. But in addition to pointing that out, Peter makes what some would feel is a very arrogant claim, what some would feel is a very intolerant position to take. Look again at verse 12. He says um, that 
There is salvation, in other words, you can't get to heaven, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, again, that's what I would like to call an unequivocal language, right? There's no wiggle room in what Peter just had to say. But our culture today would say, you know what, Gordon, our, the way we see it, we think you need to be more open-minded. We think you need to be more um, uh, you know, open to other ideas. Um, and so it seems like a very um, closed position that you're taking there. Well, this wasn't just a position that Peter had. This was a position that Peter had actually heard Jesus himself say. Jesus said, John chapter 14 and verse 6, that there is, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We just got done singing about that. No one comes to the Father but through me. And where is the Father? He's in heaven. He says, nobody gets to heaven, nobody gets to the Father, except through, Jesus says, me. Again, that flies in the face of our culture that wants to tell us that tolerance is what we need to do. We need to be open to other religions and other ideas. Uh, but not Peter, not Jesus, and not the other authors in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple other examples. John chapter 3 and verse 36. John the Baptist declared, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on him. A few verses earlier, John 3 and verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. I don't know how you could be any more clear than that. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. That means here on this earth, anybody that's ever walked on this earth, any name that's been given among men, by which we must be saved. This is the consistent, this is the unequivocal claim of the Bible. You say, okay, Gordon, I got a couple of concerns or a couple of objections about all of that. And the first of those is we live in a very diverse society. Why couldn't there be more than one way to get to heaven? Well, that's a good question, but think about it. There's, more than, there's only one way to do a lot of things in the world. Uh, there's only one way to get a rocket ship up into space, right? There's only one way to build great big muscles. There's only one way to add two plus two. I mean, you can say that it equals five, but at the end of the day, it's going to equal four, right? So there's only one way to do a lot of things. You say, okay, Gordon, I see what you're saying. Um, but I got another objection. What about people who have never heard about Jesus? What about those folks who live along the Amazon River? What about those folks who live in deepest, darkest Africa? I mean, what about them? They've never heard about Jesus. Are you saying that God's going to send them to hell even if they have no chance to even respond to the message? Well, friends, you can grow up in deepest, darkest Africa, or you can grow up in deepest, darkest Atlanta, Georgia, and never have heard the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name. You say, well, if that's the case, then maybe somebody does grow up as a Muslim. Maybe they do grow up as a Hindu. Maybe they do grow up as a Buddhist. Maybe they do grow up as a Mormon and Joseph Smith and all that stuff. Couldn't God, when they get to heaven, just credit to them Jesus? because they were really devout about their religion, because they were really uh, into it, right? Remember, they were really sincere about their practice of Buddhism. Like when they get to heaven, God reveals to them the truth. And they're like, oh, okay, that's what I've been searching for all this time. I was really hoping to find it. Couldn't God, just when they get to heaven, credit Jesus to them? Well, I suppose God can do whatever God wants, but the Bible says quite clearly that God does not do that. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
then you will be what? Saved. Then you'll be saved. There's an if-then condition to this whole business. That you have to confess Jesus as your Lord, and you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. There's some specific information that goes along with just knowing the name of Jesus. And until that happens, the Bible says that person is lost. This is the unequivocal, uncompromising message of the Bible. So indulge me for just a moment. If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. You've never appealed to him to forgive you. Um, I'm not sure how you're planning on getting to heaven. Um, Perhaps people have given you lots of ideas how you're going to get there or that when you get there, God's going to weigh out the good against the bad and hopefully the good outweighs the bad and he lets you into heaven or maybe you're just going to be a really sincere person. You're going to Make sure you visit with your grandmother a lot. Um, Whatever it may be that you think will get you into heaven, but the Bible says there's only one way, and that Jesus is that way, and that Jesus says that you have to come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's something for you to think about. You say, well, Gordon, I, I agree with what you've actually already presented here. I agree with these scriptures. I've already made that decision for Jesus. So, I mean, what difference does this make to me? Well, first of all, it means that apart from Jesus, that every single person that we pass every day in the car, every single person that we pass every day in the grocery store, every single person that we pass walking through the hallways of our school, every single person that we pass at work, every person that we run into throughout the day who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus, the Bible declares that that person is heading for a disaster in eternity. The Bible declares that that person is heading for a train wreck when they go to the other side. It means... Also, that you and I have the information that it takes to change all of that, to turn all of that around for that individual. And that information is that there is no other way that they can close the deal with God and get into a relationship with him but through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. You say, okay, Gordon, still I agree with you, no objections here. In fact, I've tried, right? I've tried to talk with my friends. I've tried to talk to my brother. I've tried to talk to my sister. I've tried to talk to my son about Jesus Christ. And Gordon, quite frankly, they just don't want to hear it. They are closed to this kind of spiritual conversation. And so I'm kind of at a loss as to what to do. Like, How do I break through to them? How do I get them to listen? How do they get them to be interested? How do I get them to come to a place where they might respond? Well, Jesus gives us a wonderful teaching in Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there or follow with me on the screen. It's a parable about the persistent widow. Let's just take a look at it real quick here. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Jesus gives us the answer. He says, And Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. So we know that already out of the get-go that the point of this parable is to be reminded that the Lord Jesus says, Hey, look, keep praying. Be persistent in prayer. So let's take a look at it. Verse 2, he said to them in this parable, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So he didn't really care what God thought and didn't care what anybody else thought either. Verse 3, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and she kept coming to him and she kept coming to him, petitioning him, asking him, give me justice against my adversary. Verse 4, for a while the judge refused. He just turned her down cold, said get out of here. But afterward, after a while, he said to himself, neither do I fear God nor respect man. Don't care what either one of them thinks. Verse 5, but because this widow keeps bothering me, 
because she keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Basically, she just wore the judge down. Verse 7. And will, and then Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect, in other words, to his own children, to you and me, who cry to him day and night? Will God delay long over our prayers? Verse 8, last verse, I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. You say, Gordon, what's all that mean? What's, God, what's Jesus trying to say here? Is he trying to say that God's an unjust judge? He's comparing God to an unjust judge? No, not at all. You read that little explanation he gives at the end, we realize that God's saying, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father, who is a just judge, grant you when you petition him the way the persistent widow did? <clears throat> and so... Um, you know, it's, it's easy enough for me to stand up here this morning and preach a sermon, right? But we say to ourselves, but the problem is that that person that I love, that person that I'm trying to reach for the gospel, they're not here. They're not hearing this. Um, it, it's good that you're preaching this and reminding us that Jesus is the one and only way to heaven. But again, they're not hearing this message. They're not given that opportunity to respond to it. And the only time that they ever have that opportunity to respond to it is when I go and try and talk to them about it. They don't want to hear anything from me. They're closed off to this message. Um, friends, you can open your mouth and you can offend them, right? And keep offending them and keep reminding them. And we can certainly keep trying that and try to get them to respond. And we do that because we're desperate. We do that because we want to see them in heaven. But the Lord Jesus says, and we've played out and exhausted those efforts that we still have one more card to play. And that is that we should never give up and prayer. Jesus says, if an unrighteous judge can be won over, how much more will our loving Heavenly Father respond to His children who mean so much to Him? You know, as we think about the coming year and we think about what God wants to do in us and how, much, how He wants to mature us, to mature the believer, to lead us toward love and joy and peace and patience and those things just to be flowing out of our life, in addition to that, God also wants to win the lost. And he wants to see the people that we know and the people that we love that are part of our lives come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in their life. And if all that we get out of 2020 is a little bit more maturity and somebody that we love coming into the family of God, what a great year that would be. What a great year that would be. Is there somebody in your life who you know is walking far from God, who you would be willing persistently like the widow to pray on their behalf? Would you be willing to make petition after petition after petition after petition, never giving up in prayer over the coming year for your friend or your loved one to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, again, if that's all that God accomplishes in the coming year. Wow. Wouldn't that be a great year? Wouldn't that be a great year? God has a vision for your life and for the people in your life in 2020. Let's listen for God's voice and obediently respond. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for talking to us today. We thank you for your great love which reached down into this world
sacrificed your one and only son on our behalf. We celebrate this meal today, symbols of your broken body and of your shed blood. And we're thankful, God, that it's not limited to church folks. It's not limited to those that are interested and have spiritual questions. Lord, it is open to everyone. Lord, we ask that those we love, those that we would so long to see come into a real and personal relationship with you, Lord, that in the coming year that would happen. We've perhaps been praying for a long time. We've been wanting this for a long time. We've tried conversations. We've done everything we can think of. Lord, we need you to intervene. We need the Father in heaven with all of heaven's resources to come to bear on those hardened souls, to soften their hearts, to open their eyes, to lead them toward, toward you. Lord, we begin to submit to you now those names, even as we sit here. You hear those names, Jesus. You long to see them brought into the family of God. Lord, we, uh, we anticipate great things. May we, like the persistent widow, never give up, never give up in prayer. We plead these things with you in Christ's holy name. Amen.